Welcome to the Documentary on One podcast from RTE in Ireland. In 1982, the Irish international rugby team won the elusive Triple Crown, beating England, Scotland and Wales for the first time in over three decades. They were national heroes, but just months beforehand, they had to spirit themselves out of the country quietly amidst a storm of controversy. Narrated by David Coughlin, this is Crossing the Line. It's locked. Ireland fighting, regroup and gather. In 1982, the Irish rugby team did something they hadn't done for over 30 years. McLaughlin going for that line, and Ireland are in and over, and the referee gives the try, Jerry McLaughlin. Beat England, Scotland and Wales to win the Triple Crown. great first by Ireland. And they did it after one of the worst years in their history. Poor Ireland, favourites to win the international championship two months ago, ended up with a wooden spoon at a rain-soaked Murrayfield. 1981 was the year of seven tests, seven defeats, and one of the most controversial tours ever undertaken when the Irish Rugby Football Union defied an international sporting boycott to travel to apartheid South Africa and play the Springboks. The news that the, <clears throat> that the Irish Rugby Union had accepted the tour uh, was met with great shock and resentment and anger by black South Africa. Under apartheid, the majority black population in South Africa were deprived of voting rights, access to education, housing, jobs, even freedom of movement. State terror and murder was commonplace under the ruling white minority. And the decision to tour South Africa split the Irish rugby team. We saw it as a, as a way of helping apartheid to actually ch uh, change. But it was wrong. It shouldn't have taken place. And split the country. And it was a little bit like the Roy Keane episode in Saipan. Many, many years later, it kind of divided the country. And had far-reaching consequences. Players lost their jobs, Irish athletes were boycotted in other events, and the country's reputation took a battering on the international stage. So how did the Irish rugby team go from sneaking out of the country to being national heroes just a few months later? In early January 1981, the RFU sent letters to around 40 players to seek their availability for a tour to South Africa that was to take place in May, just four months later. Donald Spring, this morning you received an invitation from the Irish Rugby Football Union to make yourself available for selection for their tour of South Africa this year. What have you had to say to that? I have since informed them they're not available for that tour. At the time, South Africa was shunned by the international sporting community for the country's policy of apartheid, a system of racial segregation and white supremacy. In response, international sporting boycotts had been put in place and the United Nations began compiling lists of sports people and officials who participated in events within South Africa. Boycott is necessary. Necessary because I think this is the only one way that it is going to bring the government to heel, mm -hmm. to understand that their policy of separatism is not acceptable anywhere else in the world. It was set to be Ireland's first tour to South Africa since 1961. And the decision provoked widespread criticism. The government, the church and the unions have also issued long statements and all of them have been against the tour going ahead. The Minister for Foreign Affairs, Brian Lenehan, said the government condemns a regime which has tried to build a political system on the basis of racial discrimination. 
The players had until the end of the 1981 Five Nations Championship in March to make their decision. Tony Ward was one of Ireland's best players and unlike many of his teammates making the decision, Tony had first-hand experience of South Africa. Tony had played there the previous year in 1980 with the Lions, a team made up of the best players from Ireland, England, Scotland and Wales. Did I think about apartheid in South Africa? Nope. It was rugby, rugby, rugby. That's the way life was then. I guess you're younger and, you know, that's the way you see the world. Um, so I got a real shock, I have to say, when I got into um, Johannesburg Airport. I, I remember seeing the, the things on the walls, you know, whites-only toilets. I hadn't even thought about it. And suddenly, and I remember that was the thing above everything that, you know, registered with me. So I guess that had an immediate imprint. When Tony was in South Africa with the Lions in 1980, he wanted to scratch beneath the surface, away from the official tour schedule. South Africa, the treatment we got was 10-star, wasn't 5-star. It was red car everywhere we went, best hotels, gifts everywhere we went, um, and, and really treated well. And uh, Not for a minute would I pretend otherwise. But I began, began to see things that I just didn't like, uh, basically the way people were treated, uh, whether it was in hotels, uh, maids, it was just the way they were spoken to, played a bit of golf and, and caddies that were there. and it, it was just experiencing South Africa firsthand and up front just had a really telling effect on me. And myself and Colin Patterson, um, we just decided to go behind the scenes and see what was going on. And when you scratched, it was scary what you saw. On one occasion... They went to a children's hospital on a visit arranged by the former Ireland player Roger Young, who was working as a doctor in Cape Town. And it, it was just, it was so sad, to, to, this one really got to me, that we went and we visited these um, disabled kids. I remember they came to us and they had all these drawings for us and the excitement of the lines being out there. And yet, when they were finished, they then went back to their, whether it was coloureds, whites, blacks, to their different wards, and trying to get your head around that, it just, I was really upset after seeing that. So it was all these things just adding up, and I made my mind up on that 1980 tour, even though I loved it, I loved being in lines, I played in a test match, and, you know, all the trimmings that went with it. But it was wrong. It shouldn't have taken place. And, um, and I was wrong to be there, but I didn't think twice about it. I, I was as guilty as anybody uh, in being out there because my rugby and my career came before everything at that point. Among the arguments put forward by the IRFU and their supporters in 1981 was that politics should be kept out of rugby and that they had been assured that meaningful racial integration was underway in the sport in South Africa. Sid Miller has recently returned from South Africa and he is one of the people who was consulted by the Ulster branch. A former international and British and Irish Lions manager, he is aware of the importance of the tour to the South African Rugby Board. You see, they are very conscious of the changes they have made and they don't quite understand why, in sport certainly, when I don't accept the situation because there is no apartheid in sport. But you say that uh, there's no apartheid in sport now. Mm. I mean, surely you're not suggesting that rugby union in South Africa is now multiracial? Oh, yes. Is the prop, there, is, there is no bar to anyone playing rugby football at any level. 
The view of Sid Miller and others was flatly dismissed by a growing chorus of voices like Edmund Van Esbeck of the Irish Times. Uh, for Sid to say, and I'm astounded to, for the, that he should say that, that uh, there is no apartheid in sport. That's a nonsense. He knows that. That's absolute nonsense. On the 14th of January 1981, the collateral damage for Irish sport became evident. A telegram from Sanrock announced that Ethiopia had withdrawn from the recent cross-country race in Formoy. With the Five Nations Championship due to begin on the 7th of February, the pressure was mounting on the players. Hugo McNeil was an economic student in Trinity College at the time and had been called into the Irish squad for his first cap in the opening game of the 1981 Five Nations against France at Lansdowne Road. 1981 was the first year of cap for Ireland. I was a student at the time. I was in, uh, I was in Trinity, and uh, I, which was great fun. It was a great thrill. It was obviously the sort of a dream come true. I always wanted to sort of play for Ireland coming up through, coming up through schools, and then suddenly happened. The Irish anti-apartheid movement was led by Kader Asmal, a South African human rights activist and professor at the university. The Irish anti-apartheid movement has announced it's forming a special anti-tour committee to protest at the forthcoming tour by the Irish rugby team of South Africa. The chairman of the movement, Mr. Asmal, said he hoped Irish journalists wouldn't report the tour. It was a little bit like the Roy Keane episode in Saipan. Many, many years later, it kind of divided the country. Um, people saying, you know, try and keep politics out of sport. Others saying, you know, you can't, and especially in a country like like South Africa, and so uh, at the time. Every day, the letters to the newspapers and the chat shows. I mean, there wasn't social media at the time. I mean, if there had been, my goodness, it would have been extraordinary or off the charts. But it was the closest thing to that because everybody had a view. Everybody had a view that was right to go or it was wrong to go. The issue was raised in the European Parliament by John Hume as the pressure mounted on the RFU to call off the tour. At home, it was announced that government ministers and the Irish President Patrick Hillary would not attend Five Nations games at Lansdowne Road and that a wire fence would be erected around the pitch to stop protesters. As the 1981 Five Nations Championship approached, the players were wrestling with this huge decision for a tour that was now just 13 weeks away. The Springboks, as South Africa were known, were regarded as one of the best teams in the world and the tour would be a rare opportunity to test themselves at this level. But for some players, like Donald Spring, the decision was an easy one after Donald's previous experience playing in South Africa with London Irish in 1977. To actually see people treating other human beings in the way that they're treated in South Africa as second-class second citizens due to the colour of their skin is hard to believe until you actually come up with it face to face. And um, I found it embarrassing and felt guilty by playing rugby out there with people who treated their fellow human beings like this. On the 3rd of February, Charles Hawhey's cabinet confirmed they were to stop a £12,000 grant to the IRFU. It was also the government's position that civil servants would not be granted leave for the tour. The 1981 Five Nations kicked off on the 7th of February against France just 13 weeks before the tour was due to depart. The night before the game was marked by a torchlit protest and a letter was delivered to the IRFU who were continuing to insist that maintaining contact with South Africa would help racial integration in the country. 
And we feel that by going to South Africa, we will aid the desegregation process, which is the stated aim of SAR. Ireland lost to France, and as the 1981 Five Nations rolled on, the scrutiny surrounding the South Africa tour was beginning to tell, as Ireland suffered defeat after defeat. Pressure on the players to decide cranked up and Tony Ward remembers discussions with Irish coach Tom Kiernan about his own participation. Uh, I do. I remember I had a few meetings with Tommy Kiernan in the Shelburne Hotel at the time because Tommy obviously was trying to convince me to go out, which I appreciated in pure playing terms. Um, but I, as I say, I had my, my, made my mind up from the previous year that I, I just couldn't. I just couldn't go back. I couldn't justify it in my conscience. It, it was the wrong thing to do. Um, and, and look, I, I could look at it and say there's a chance of getting a few more caps, all the obvious things. But what does that mean at the end of the day relative to humanity and, and what I had witnessed? By the middle of March, 11 players had informed the IRFU they would be unavailable for a variety of reasons. Well, it would be considerably depleted. I mean, you've already had Moss Keane, Tony Ward and Donald Spring withdrawing for reasons of principle. You have Paul McNaughton, Kieran Fitzgerald, Mick Fitzpatrick, Ken Hooks and Nigel Carr all unavailable for business or domestic reasons. Um, I believe that within the next 48 hours you're going to get one or two more withdrawals. John Robbie is a retired radio broadcaster who has lived in South Africa for the last 40 years. Back in 1981, he was part of the Ireland rugby team and working for Guinness when he found himself suddenly making front-page news. I mean, all hell broke loose because, you know, Kada Asmal was a, a professor at Trinity. Uh, his wife and himself led the anti-apartheid movement and Ireland was, was, was very anti-apartheid, anti which I considered myself, you know, like any, any sane person. But obviously, rugby was my, my absolute priority. And so this tour was coming up and, and a lot of people came to me and, and said, look, you mustn't go. I mean, I know John Telford, a very good friend of mine and former teammate who was involved in Amnesty International. I remember having a chat to him and coming out of that meeting with him saying, that's it, I'm not going to go. And then I met other people, rugby people, and they said, uh, look, you know, where, where do you draw the line? I mean, if you, if you allow politics to interfere with sport, then the Olympics is gone, teams are banned, this, that, and the other. So there were all these things going around. And um, I suppose inside, I knew it was wrong. I knew one day I, I, would, I would regret it. But looking back at myself at that age, rugby was absolutely everything. At the time, Guinness had a huge investment in Nigeria with four breweries there. On the 19th of March, John was told he would not be granted any special leave for the tour. And because the Nigerians wouldn't be one of the great rugby-following countries in the world, certainly not then. And uh, funnily enough, it was an old schoolmate of mine, Peter Murta, a very well-known journalist who wrote the book on Charlie Hoy, who realised there was a story and went to the Nigerians and said, are you aware that John Robbie and Mike Gibson, who also worked in Guinnesses, are probably going to be selected for this tour? And they said, well, then we have to take steps. And having given me permission to tour, Guinnesses then said, look, I'm afraid you can't tour. And, and uh, in a funny sort of a way, being told that, having been told I could tour, made me a little bit bullshit. Ireland's final game of the 1981 Five Nations Championship fell on the 21st of March, the 21st anniversary of the Sharpeville Massacre, when South African police fired on black protesters 
killing 69 people and wounding another 180. Time was almost up for the players to decide, with the tour now just seven weeks away. As the debate around Ireland's tour continued, then-Sunday Tribune journalist Tom McGurk confronted Chick Henderson, who was representing the South African rugby board in the RTE studios. Now, the reason I ask you the question is the IRFU have been trying to sell this tour yeah. on the basis that it's going to break down apartheid in South Africa. Now, I believe that you're a hypocrite and the South African rugby board are hypocrites because you have no intention of breaking down apartheid in South Africa. Well, look you're simply, hang on a second, line. you're simply concerned That's with dressing up a form line. of cosmetic rugby that will be accepted to the rest of the world. Are you asking a question or are you making a statement? I'm, I'm, I'm saying both. Well, you are, are you, you're being, to say the least of it, damned unfair. A petition with 18,000 names was delivered to the IRFU calling for the tour to be abandoned. All the while, Trade continued between Ireland and South Africa, despite calls for an embargo from the opposition parties. Hugo McNeil informed the IRFU he would not be travelling to South Africa. He joined Tony Ward, Moss Keane and Donald Spring in taking a stand against apartheid. It was really mostly um, the time the black leaders in South Africa were saying, please don't come and play rugby. Uh, against us. The Afrikaners don't really care if nobody trades with them or even if they don't come on holidays there, but they really do care about the about the rugby. And so uh, the more I thought about it, the more I thought it was best not to go. Uh, and, uh, you, you know, since then, it's that, that view has only really been confirmed. The Five Nations Championship came to a close with a defeat to Scotland. And with the distraction of the South African tour, Ireland had lost every game to collect the dreaded wooden spoon. When I came home, I found that my younger brother had put a big wooden spoon on my, on my bed, so <laughs> fortunately, uh, things were going to go better from that. When the team and officials got back to Dublin, the selection committee met for three and a half hours before picking the squad for the tour to South Africa. Amongst the names was John Robbie, despite having been told by his employer's Guinness that he would not be given leave from work. My, my dad had been in Guinnesses for a long time. He was the marine engineer and ran the Guinness ships. In fact, he built one of them. He built the Lady Patricia. Despite the family connection, John resigned from his job to go on the tour. I suppose I could have said, played hardball and said, look, you told me I could go and I demand compensation or something. But my brother still worked in, in Guinnesses, my brother David. And, you know, we had this family background, so I didn't really want to cause a, uh, a, cause a fuss. Mike Gibson, the other Guinness employee on the Ireland team, decided to opt out of the tour to keep his job. But another player, Jerry Holland of Munster, resigned his job in a computer company to join the tour. At the time, rugby was still an amateur game and choosing sport above a job was a huge decision, particularly at a time when unemployment was sky high. The decision to proceed with Ireland's tour was having a knock-on effect. On the 16th of April, Greystones Rugby Club were barred from Zimbabwe by Robert Mugabe's government and had to cancel a six-match tour of the country. On the 27th of April, the proposed Ireland tour of South Africa wound up in the High Court. A civil engineer from Cork, Mr John V Lennon, has been given permission in the High Court to seek an injunction against the IRFU, which would prohibit the use by them of the words Ireland or Irish in relation to their South African touring team. 
With the details, here's Derek Davis. Counsel for Mr Lennon of Lee Road, Cork, outlined his client's case and read an affidavit in which Mr Lennon said he was seeking the ban as an Irish citizen, entitled to the good name of Ireland and also for the promotion of the common good of the people of Ireland. The injunction failed and the confirmation that Ireland were set to tour for the first time since 1961 was a major boost for the South African Rugby Board and the whites-only government there. At that time, South Africa's ruling regime were campaigning in a general election, one in which only white people had a vote. The white voters of South Africa have been going to the polls for nearly seven hours now in a general election. On the streets of South Africa, tensions were rising as the white leaders of the ruling National Party began celebrations of the 20th anniversary of their full independence from Britain. For Ireland, in these circumstances, to uh, send teams to South Africa is a definite uh, win for the South African propaganda machine. Meanwhile, school teacher Jerry McLaughlin, or Ginger McLaughlin as he was known, resigned his job to go on the tour with Ireland. Good morning, Jerry. Good morning, KDF. Fine morning, isn't it? Not a bad morning. <laughs> the typical Kilkey day now, you know. You never know where it's going to turn out. <laughs> At least it's These days, It'll Jerry is living in Kilkey in West Clare, where he swims every morning. Back in 1981, he had been working as a school teacher at Sexton Street CBS in Limerick, when he was told he wouldn't be given leave for the tour. It was a simple decision. Do I resign or do I um, walk out or do I not go? And I just think the honourable thing to do was to resign. And I, I wouldn't criticise them what they've done. And I came back, I accepted it, and it was grand. Because I still had my rugby, remember? Rugby was still the most important thing to me, you know? And playing for Ireland was th that important, yeah. And we, that's so important in your life. If it's a way out of everything for you, and if it's a way into everything for you, and you do the right thing as you feel you're doing, then you're happy. So I, I didn't have any qualms of conscience, I still don't have today. At the time, Jerry was only focused on rugby, and he saw playing for Ireland as more important than his job. If he didn't suit my rugby career, I probably wouldn't have got married. I just thinking rugby was was God to us. I bought my house alongside Tuam Park to be close to Tuam Park, and that's be close to my job, because rugby is more important than my job. As a school teacher, I spent as much time teaching rugby as I did teaching economics. <laughs> as some people said, they learned more about rugby than they did about economics. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't disagree with that either. So I just, I just feel to understand what rugby was like was like in Limerick. Rugby was God, and it was a way of of getting out of poverty. It was a way of, of a bit of happiness, a bit of I don't know what would you call it, exercise. You know, the adrenaline was flowing. Called it an addiction if you like, but I mean, it, it was our way of living. On the 1st of May, with the departure just over a week away, the IRFU were summoned to government buildings to meet Taoiseach Charles Hawhey. The Taoiseach met representatives of the Irish Rugby Football Union this morning to tell them why he believes they should call off the proposed tour of South Africa. The IRFU leaders will consider his views at a meeting this evening and reply later. As with a private meeting, we will not uh, have any, anything more to say at this time. It's considered tonight and our reply will come then 
direct to the Taoiseach's office. So you have something to think about at this stage? You are telling me that I have something to think about. I did not say that I have something to think about, but of course we, the Taoiseachs, to, uh, uh, to come and see him, we of course went to see him, and our views will be brought forward to our meeting tonight. On the same day, RTE announced they would not be broadcasting or reporting on the tour. Kevin Healy asked RTE's Head of Information, Louis MacRedmond, what was the principal factor which influenced their decision? The pub public opinion, I should say, uh, a very clear opposition among the public. Well, how much information will um, rugby fans get about this tour of South Africa if it does go ahead? Will there be any coverage at all by RTE of the tour? No coverage. The, we broadcast the results of the matches. Meanwhile, the players had been given secret instructions for their departure. The IRFU had booked the touring party on a flight from Dublin to London for the 9th of May, but Erlinga's staff and unions representing airport workers indicated they would not handle the booking. Alternate plans were going to be needed. On Saturday, the 9th of May, Tony Ward was travelling to London to watch the 1981 FA Cup final at Wembley when he met a familiar face on the flight over. But I remember going over on that trip and I remember meeting Ginger, Jerry McLaughlin on the flight going over. We had arranged it, we just happened to be on the same flight. He was going to London and what the players were doing, which I didn't know anything about because I, I wasn't involved because I'd said no, so I didn't have any contact from the IRFU. The players all went out in their civvies and I think this sums it up. Jerry, like the rest of them, was in his civvies in his ordinary clothes and they were meeting up in London where they were gathering to move on from there. And I presume that's where they would have put on their number ones and their, you know, their, their, their gear for the tour and that sort of thing. So I, I think that reflects the attitude at the time or the realisation deep down within the IRFU that we're wrong. Because if they weren't, I, I would have thought the way to go out would be, no, we're going and, you know, we turn up in the airport in a bus and we're all travelling out together. Or maybe I'm being unfair in saying that, but I, I was shocked, I have to be honest, because um, I, I obviously didn't know this was going on, this kind of, um, it was cloak and dagger stuff, to get out of the country. The 26-man squad was made up of players from Ulster, Munster, Connacht and Leinster and had several experienced players. But with so many top stars missing... 12 players who had never played for Ireland before were in the panel. After a flight to Johannesburg, they were met by a delegation from the South African Rugby Board and there were banners hanging in the arrivals hall saying, Welcome Irish men of courage and character. John Robbie remembers a feeling of unease. We arrived in and it was mentocrat. There were thousands of people, all white, Welcome, Ireland. A rugby friend is a friend indeed. And I remember there was one that said, Robbie, you little beauty. So I remember then thinking, you know, gosh, here, here we go. And, and it was totally over the top. John Robbie and Jerry McLaughlin were offered jobs in South Africa. And John received small financial donations from South African fans while over there out of work. Because a couple of us had lost our jobs... That had become a big story. So literally, we'd arrive in a, in, in a hotel and there'd be envelopes waiting for John Robbie with money, with cash in them for me. Thank you, John. Buy a donkey, John. You know, John there. And, and, and it was crazy. And uh, I took them. The IRFU had demanded at least three games against multiracial sides 
before the two tests against South Africa. And so these were simply made up sides and, and as a result, they, they weren't particularly strong. But the majority of black players in South Africa had their own governing body and played in their own competitions with no funding or adequate facilities and would not be involved in the games against Ireland. These players were opposed to the Irish tour or any tour that gave credibility to apartheid on and off the field. Since 1949, it was illegal to have an interracial marriage in South Africa. Ahead of the second game on the tour, a 90-year-old Dubliner called Paddy Kavanagh, who was married to a black South African, approached the Ireland team looking for help. He and his wife were being evicted from their house of over 40 years as the neighbourhood was being redeveloped as a whites-only area. The RFU, while sympathising with their plight, declined to get involved. Jerry McLaughlin remembers going to visit the township of Soweto, where over a million black people lived without electricity. We were disgusted when we went out and we saw Soweto and the way the blacks were, were, and the colours were treated, how they nearly bow before you and everything else, you know? But I mean, that wasn't our job. Our job was to play rugby. And so, so we saw there's a chance to put Ireland on the map come back and maybe do something, you know? Because everyone thought, thought they were always good enough to live for Ireland. So if some four, four or five fellas weren't going, it meant four or five new fellas got chances to go. On the field, Ireland registered three wins against the teams thrown together to meet the RFU's demands of multiracial rugby. In their second last game, Ireland faced the daunting prospect of playing the Springboks in a test match at the intimidating Newland Stadium in Cape Town. Dion O'Quinnigan is a doctor living in Cape Town. He grew up in South Africa, but later captained Ireland in the late 1990s. His father was a dentist from Ireland, and he went to the game in Cape Town as a nine-year-old with his dad. Um, I can just remember very, very excited. I must admit, I was nine, ten years old, so that's quite a long time ago. Um, but it was the first time I had been to watch Ireland. I remember the atmosphere, I remember walking the streets, I remember walking into the game. Um, yeah, it was great excitement. I think it might have been maybe my second or third time to Newlands. The game was also particularly memorable for the selection of Errol Tobias, the first black player to be ever selected for South Africa. And Tobias, Tobias is going to score on his own. Tobias going for the corner, Errol will score. Yeah, he does. A lovely try by Errol Tobias. He had Errol Williams with him, but there was the dummy, the power, and look how, how delighted he is, Errol Tobias. I mean, I suppose one of the one of my heroes was um, Errol Tobias. And I mean, uh, he got to play his first test against Ireland, you know, on that tour. And he was, he was a superstar. Errol Tobias grew up in Caledon near Cape Town and still lives there today. His hometown club were part of a small splinter union that meant he was eligible to play for the Springboks, even though no black player had ever been selected in the previous 90 years. Like all non-white citizens in South Africa at the time, Errol was subjected to repressive apartheid laws and restrictions about where he could live, work and frequent. He was aware of the opposition in Ireland towards the tour and the opposition around the world 
towards the apartheid regime. Yes, we were uh, aware because um, it was 20 years ago since they've last been in South Africa. But um, um, we, we've, we've been banned from, from world rugby. And um, they wanted us to, 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 to um, vote um, one man, one vote. That's what the, the, the rest of the world wanted. And um, it was a hard way of doing it, but I think it was the right way to ban us and, and to, to, to hold us at, at bay and say, look, this is inhumane. You have to correct this. At 31 years of age, Errol was running out of time to show off his talents to the world and was desperate for the Irish tour to go ahead. We in this region said, look, we need to show these people that uh, there's no difference in, in people when their colour differ. That's what we, we said. And we think that we can make breakthroughs in, in, in playing, in showing what our calibre is, that God give any man a talent. And if it happens to be a rugby talent, then you need to get a chance to showcase it and get through the system. And eventually, if you're good enough, um, you should be elected or irrespective of um, the laws that white and black shouldn't be in one room, shouldn't play together, shouldn't represent South Africa. His selection as the first black Springbok was divisive, with opposition from both the hardline white Afrikaners and from some within the black community. Yeah, I, I did get a few phone calls, uh, but not much, um, but I did get a few phone calls. One major opponent to him playing for the Springboks was the renowned anti-apartheid activist Desmond Tutu. Strange to say he's in the same church as I. I'm Anglican, he's also Anglican. Now he doubted it and he put it in, in one of the magazines in, in, in Gauteng. And I answered him back, I said to him, look, I want you to react after I've played my test. News of Errol's selection for the Springboks reached Robben Island Prison, where Nelson Mandela and many of the ANC leaders were being held. Years later, Mandela told Errol about the reaction at the prison to his selection. Madiba, as we called him, said, um, Errol, you know, when you were elected, that dark tunnel that we were in, there was a little small light for us. That's how we saw it. And we then said, look, we had to keep on piling on the pressure, they're beginning to crack. And he said, can you see what a powerful tool rugby is? We must use it when we get in power. We mustn't take uh, the Afrikaners rugby away. We use the rugby to, to, to mold our, our, our country's people. And then he said something very special. He said, let's all hold thumbs so that it'll play well. Because then we can push it more. We can say, look, there is a, a, a situation where you can see participating together is not about your colour. It's about how good you are. It's about your talents. On the 30th of May, 1981, Errol Tobias stepped onto the field to face Ireland in the Springboks jersey. He stood alongside his all-white teammates and sang the South African national anthem. In all fairness, I had my doubts. Although it was beautiful, although it was meaningful, the first time in my life, 
because we have sung it in schools. But now the first time in my life, I have to stand up for my country after singing it. I had to do a job. It was a different sort of feeling that came through your veins. Because RTE had refused to carry the matches, the commentary we have is in Afrikaans from South African TV. That day, Errol set up a try for his friend Rob Lowe, as South Africa won the game 23-15. But Ireland had surprised many watchers with their battling display. I heard the Irish captain um, Fergus Slattery call out to my opponent at centre, David Irvin. You would be foolish if you think this man is a political choice. You know, they, they were so hard and tough that, that I could remember. And their ball-carrying um, uh, qualities was of a high standard. A week later, Ireland had another chance against the Springboks. And this time, they nearly won it. With six minutes to go, Ireland led 10-9. Jerry McLaughlin felt victory was within their grasp, but was dismayed at the referee. Yeah, we, we should have won the last test. We'd have beaten, we were on their line. And next thing, Pell Mad, the venture free, gave us six penalties to them. And that's both the top of the goal the other side of the field. Oh, we were mad about that. Pile of penalties. Nas Botha's drop goal gave South Africa a 12 10 victory. The tour was over, but its impact was still being felt. Athletic star John Tracy was stopped from competing at an event in Florence as Ethiopian athletes said they would not race against him. Whatever the enduring legacy, the touring party had to go home and face the immediate future. In the glare of the spotlight, the on-the-pitch team ended the year losing another game to Australia to make it seven test defeats in a row. Meanwhile, the IRFU defiantly announced that it was in a healthy position with a surplus of £119,000 in its coffers. This rugby team now faced into the 1982 Five Nations Championship without the likes of John Robbie, who had decided to stay in South Africa. You know, as with everything, rugby was behind it to go and learn and try and improve as a rugby player. Uh, but it was also to get out of that shitstorm. Kieran Fitzgerald had been made captain and Jerry McLaughlin and others now had a foothold in the team. Strangely, a tour that had been so divisive had galvanised the squad. It had given opportunities to new players and they'd gained the confidence that they could take on the best in the world. Hugo McNeil remembers discussing the team's chances with teammate Willie Duggan. And I said, how do you think we'll do in the championship this year? We were going on. He said, you know, I think we'll win the championship and the triple crown. And I said, what? And he said, I think he said it a few bob on it as well. But it's a, I said, how do you think? He said, no, we're not far away. And um, it was, it was, it was wonderful. I mean, we just tore Wales apart with, with uh, and then went on to Twickenham. And, and uh, I mean, a great day against, you know, England at Twickenham. With the game against England tightly balanced, Jerry McLaughlin scored one of the most famous tries in Irish rugby history, carrying half the England team with him over the line. Into the 22, into Duggan, back to Campbell, back to Duggan. McLaughlin going for that line, and Ireland are in and over, and the referee gives the try. Jerry McLaughlin. I remember over the line, I shot a try. I remember screaming. Try! 
And Aaron Hosey was the referee. Now, Jerry McLaughlin. My hand went up, and Hosey's hand went up. <laughs> More than nine months on from the South Africa tour, it was still having an effect. While Jerry was the toast of the country, he was signing on at the Labour Exchange. I tried to get a job teaching. I couldn't get a reply from anyone. There was 40 letters I sent out, no one replied to me. Yeah. Actually, it was funny. While I was winning the Triple Crown, I was actually on the dole. Everything was now building towards the meeting with Scotland on the 20th of February 1982 and a chance at immortality. A chance to win the Triple Crown for the first time since 1949. It was an astonishing turnaround for a team that had been forced to sneak out of the country just a few months earlier. A team that the national broadcaster refused to cover. A team that the national airline wouldn't carry. A team that were now national heroes. And so this, then the whole country just took off for the next couple of weeks before we played Scotland. I mean, the whole... And we've got to remember at the time and the context, the early 1980s were pretty tough times in Ireland. You know, there was 20% unemployment. 50% of that were people out at work for more than a year. And so that's why, at this very difficult time, the whole sense of the rugby team, our team, we were going out and we were winning and we were going, we could be champions again, we could be champions of Europe for the first time really meaningfully since 1949 there was the, the, the whole country just for the, in the, in the period up to the, the Scottish game uh, was just going mad, you couldn't go anywhere, everybody was talking about it Tony Ward had lost his place in the team to Ollie Campbell and Campbell was kicking Ireland to glory Atmosphere was just extraordinary in the in the in the crowd. I mean, it just took us so long to get off the pitch. Um, afterwards, it took about 20 minutes. We, at that time, the crowd could all sort of sort of come over. Like it's just when the, so when the final whistle went, it, the place just went absolutely crazy. People piled onto the pitch. It took us 20 minutes to get off. It was the whole country was the whole country and the whole island was was, was sort of behind us at that time. And it was it was the first time. So Ireland were champions. And there are the scenes of complete euphoria here at Lansdowne Road as Ireland seal their first triple crown in 33 years. Jerry McLaughlin remembers the weeks of celebrations. Unbelievable. I was the only Limerick man in, 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 in the team. So you can imagine what Limerick was like, like you know? Yeah. It was unbelievable. We, we were wined and dined for a month. Just days after winning the triple crown, the entire Ireland squad that travelled to South Africa were named on the United Nations apartheid blacklist. But the IRFU were already making plans to send players and officials back to South Africa for an exhibition game later that very year. While Ireland were winning the Triple Crown, John Robbie was beginning his new life in South Africa. He became a hugely successful radio host and used his platform to change attitudes towards apartheid. His decision in 1981 was never far from his mind. I'm getting over it and, and learning to forgive myself and move forward and, and, and rather look at some of the good that came out of it, that I feel came out of it. But I still got that little pang of, pang of guilt, I must be honest, David. His radio show became a thorn in the side of the apartheid regime. So much so that a hit was put out on him to be carried out by one of the apartheid regime's most feared killers, Eugene de Kock. Years later, he came face to face with the hitman. 
So Eugene de Kock puts his face right up to mine, like two inches away, and he says, in the early 90s, the police ordered me to assassinate you with a crossbow. And the police had told him to take this, this mouth out on the radio and, 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 and kill him with a crossbow to send a message. And once I recovered, I said, well, what happened? He says, I used to listen to your program. And I didn't kill people who I didn't believe. I killed people who I thought were planting bombs. And I said, had you not had that view, would I still be alive? And he said, no, of course, you'd have been a victim of crime. And that sort of concentrated my mind. And, and in a funny sort of a way, it was cathartic because it was almost a badge of honor that having, in a way, done something that I thought was shameful, looking at the overall South African situation and what was right, the very fact that the, that the heart of apartheid wanted me taken out, I, I wear as a sort of badge of honour. For Errol Tobias, the tour was life-changing and he believes his appearance as the first black springbok started a process that eventually led to Sia Khaleesi being the first black springbok captain to win the World Cup in 2019. Sia Khaleesi in South Africa, a rugby World Cup kings in Japan! Well, that was wonderful. Um, um, it was a wonderful moment for South Africa and the world, because I never would have thought that I, I'm 71 years of age, that I would be able to to see the first black captain um, receiving the World Cup. I never thought I would have seen that, and to me, it's very, very special. Um, where I started, somebody else is going in on a new platform. Um, um, for South African sports. Jerry McLaughlin emigrated to Wales in 1987, worked and played rugby before moving back to Ireland again. He was mayor of Limerick before moving to Kilkee in County Clare, where he has found peace after a battle with depression. Swimming every day helps. He is philosophical now about his decision to tour South Africa. Now I would probably not do anything like what I did 40 or 50 years ago. Is it 40 years ago? Is it? Yeah, 40 years ago. But like, you know, I'm 40, 40 years on. I've given attitude to life now. I've gone through it. And um, I felt there was nothing wrong with what I did then. Honestly, didn't feel there was anything wrong. Now, if I was to do something, I feel, yeah. In recent years, he has spent time helping disadvantaged communities in Gambia. Maybe I was meant to go another way. So maybe it's just turned around. It would never have experienced the Gambia. It wasn't for South Africa. And all these years later, rugby is still Jerry's greatest passion. Everything was rugby all my life, you know. So here I am in Kilkee now and there's no rugby team. <laughs> so I'm thinking of moving to Kilrush. Seriously thinking of moving to Kilrush because there's a rugby team there. <laughs> and I'm 70 and feeling every day of it. Crossing the Line was narrated by David Coughlin and produced by David Coughlin and Donal O'Hurley. Sound supervision was by Padder Carney. Until next time, 
All the best.